Hi, everyone. Welcome to Greater Than Code. And I am Artemis Starr here with my fabulous co-host, Jacob Stobel. Hello, and it is my pleasure to introduce our special guest this week, Willem Larson. Currently paying the bills as a software engineer and technical coach, Willem has been engaged with Accelerated Team and Community Learning for over 25 years. He is co-author of Five Rules for Accelerated Learning, author of The Language Hunter's Kit, and founder of Language Hunters, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to a renaissance in how communities of practice learn together in technology, language, science, and music, and both a wildlife tracker and search and rescue tracker. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful being here. So our first question we ask everybody is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Yeah, so my superpower is basically meta. That is my superpower. So for as long as I can remember, I've been thinking about thinking and learning about learning and knowing more about how we know and exploring about how we explore. And, and it, you know, it just goes on and on, you know, Russian, Russian nesting dolls, right? The irony being that, like, you know, as far as how I acquired it, it's probably because of also for as long as I can remember, I felt like there was something desperately wrong <laughs> with what, how, how everyone was interacting, how systems, you know, whether public school or other systems I was in were working. And uh, it was just like the sort of clawing sense of doubt that anything like this is normal or, or okay. And so, yeah, I mean, that's it's my uh, superpower is meta. Currently, I'm into physics about physics. So, you know, it just keeps going. <laughs> so there's something in your bio, uh, community learning. Can you say a little yes. bit more about that? Well, uh, when I was really young, like in my late teens, early 20s, I got on this path of outdoor skills and nature awareness and wilderness living, what some people might call wilderness survival. But then, of course, wilderness is sort of a modern colonized concept of the natural environment, right? And pretty much all natural environments at some point were, if not now, human-tended, right? So that we human beings built the Amazon and human beings maintained the Great Prairies. And where I live in Portland, Oregon, human beings burned to maintain oak savanna grasslands that were abundant with acorns. And So anyway... What I learned about when I was getting into this, as as you're already hearing, is that there were these self-sustaining communities that uh, indigenous traditional communities that flawlessly transmitted everything that one generation knew to the next generation. And then it would increase, right? And then built on that. And they had no uh, universities and no public schools. They had no uh, textbooks. They had no libraries, per se, as we know them, right? But still, they managed to maintain and increase these massive storehouses of knowledge and ability, right? Everything from like how to build a canoe and make a bow to how to maintain a landscape and to, and to know when, you know, climate is varying and what to do. So when I found out about this, I got super interested in these indigenous cultures, which are still with us today. Portland has, I think, like 75,000 Native Americans in the greater metro area. It's a thriving population of folks all over the world or uh, all over the country. 
So uh, I got really interested in like, you know, what are these cultures? And at the time I thought, oh, you know, native folks are, it's like the fairies, right? They're just fading away. They're just, uh, you know, and then I found out that no, they're still here and they're still thriving and still working hard to maintain their cultural unbroken uh, lineage practices and language. And so really my introduction to accelerated learning is from these kinds of communities and these kinds of teachers. I've had several friends and mentors who are indigenous folks and still are. Then so I've got like to experience firsthand what the expectations are of a learner in an indigenous community and how different that was in a um, sort of the modern world, right? As a child of these systems of learning where you, you expect spoon feedings. And in fact, you're compelled to accept the spoon feeding, right? Too many questions or breaking outside the, the system of transmission and knowledge, you know, disrupts the processor. So, and whereas the flip side of this is that, you know, in this world of tracking and nature awareness and community learning, it was like the more, the better questions you had, the better you did. And the better you were at generating and then pursuing your own lines of research without ever getting an answer from a mentor, you know, the, the happier they were, even though they're to support you, right? So it was like creating self-sustaining learners. And so, yeah, so that so that's just followed me and followed me. It, it followed me into my interest in endangered heritage languages. For example, I don't speak Danish, and I much of my uh, ancestors were Danish, and I, I don't speak Irish, and some of my other ancestors were Irish, right? I've completely lost those languages. So what's funny is what our modern culture puts indigenous peoples through, we're more than happy to put you know, our own families through and our children through. Like, even like, it cracks me up that one of the great horrors of in America is these residential schools where, you know, kids were stolen from their native families and trapped in these schools and forced to speak English. But then what is like the most popular children's fantasy <laughs> novels in the world is Harry Potter, where, you know, that like, I mean, those kids are gone for like nine or 10 months out of the year, you know, like, I mean, it just blows my mind, you know, that this is like normal, right? And uh, I mean, I've run into folks, you know, friends who in the U.S. who also like have sent their kids off to boarding schools. And so anyway, it's, there's, there's all these structures that get in the way of us really exploring uh, human potential and service to like these other industrial needs or other cultural needs that we're like prioritizing, right? We're saying we care less about human potential and the maintenance of our human habitat, right? Which is all in the news right now. We care less about that than we care about these industrial or mass needs, economic needs, right? So yeah, commu accelerated community learning. It's It really opens up Pandora's box of like... <laughs> every possible issue when you start uh, designing a, a learning environment, as I originally did for uh, nature skills and tracking, and then went on to do for endangered heritage languages, you realize that when somebody's struggling in a space, that what they're struggling with may be in the large sense, like they're totally blocked by it, right? is something that everybody in that space is struggling struggling with in the small. So like maybe at 1%, you know, this person's 100% blocked, but everybody else is like 1% blocked or maybe 8% blocked, right? So by unblocking whatever is going on for that person, suddenly you've harvested a, an, an increment of, of acceleration of potential for everybody else. And it ends up 
as you design these learning and performance environments when it comes to software and software teams, it becomes like, you know, Richard Pryor in Superman 3, where he's like, it's called salami slicing, where he got all the fractions of a penny. And then and that came up again in the Office Space movie. But uh, for every 50,000 employees and, you know, and getting uh, checks once a week in a company where they're getting fractions of a penny and Richard Pryor is like, oh, I'll just take all those fractions of a penny and uh, it won't be that much. And it ended up being millions, you know, after a few months. And so, like, that's the capacity of these original communities, right? That it's looking out for everybody. Neurodiversity, like, was, I mean, we've got all these terms as we're struggling with, wow, why don't things work? And you have these original communities that still understand that, you know, every child that is born in the community is a treasure and is going to teach us about our own humanity and capacity to learn as a community, right? And we're not going to go, uh, we don't have time for your different way of seeing the world. You've just got to squash it into this box, right? No, we, in fact, we learn from your way and we grow because of it and we get even more capacity, right? And I've certainly seen this happen on uh, software teams that I've participated on. And I also uh, designed learning for a coding boot camp and same experience, like every time you'd accommodate someone and you just make a new working agreement in the cohort, uh, the whole everybody's experience would improve. Wow. Yeah. I have a million questions. <laughs> I'm glad I took notes through that whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me give you a little bit of context about me. The overlaps of things are kind of interesting. So I live in Austin, Texas now, but I grew up in Oregon, suburban Portland area, Salem, Bend. And so I definitely have these roots of hang out in the wilderness, woods, hippie love child, you know, <laughs> you know, there's this class of people in Oregon that are the type of people that'll like chain themselves to a tree, right? <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. And my dad was a bird biologist and really uh, interested in environmental protection kinds of things. Got involved in environmental protection for Oregon and specifically uh, doing research on animal migration patterns in the city and then working on legislature to protect green spaces that would allow for for these creatures habitats to be maintained and prevent urban growth from going into these critical areas going on beach cleanup so it's it's like on yeah. one level i've been you know embedded in this sort of wilderness vibe world and like i went to oregon state i'm a beaver. yeah yeah <laughs> and then i ended up migrating my way to Austin as I got into software and tech. And I'm also in this accelerated learning world in that um, my research, my book on IdeaFlow is a data-driven learning technique for software engineers, which is all about what are the specific sorts of observations we need to be able to make that give us the right questions to ask that lead us to accelerated learning around how do we do better? How do we work better together as a team? How do we see together better as a team? How do we combine all of our capabilities and nurture and grow one another as a community and working toward, you know, what does a peer mentorship team really look like? And so right now I'm working on a effort essentially to build a new kind of school <laughs> that is very much anchored oh, nice. in source of principles. And so I, I think a fun yeah. direction to take this conversation would actually be talking about education 
system infrastructure. So if by chance you've got all these experiences with indigenous learning communities and the systems and things that work in that place, and you've seen this world where what is normal is not okay in this feeling of this actually makes no sense, right? We can do so much better than the existing way that we have become used to doing things, right? And if you were to erase the existing education system and reimagine what it looks like, what sorts of things would you do? Well, I have one child that goes to public school, is in high school, and I have one child that my wife homeschools and has a, a homeschooling, or really it's unschooling. Um, usually the difference between homeschooling and unschooling is homeschoolers have a curriculum and unschoolers are follow your passion, which is back to that self-sustaining researchers and you know find your own question and follow it skill, right? So I'm a big fan of unschooling. So in that sense, like I really do think in the end, you know, some of this gets entangled up with privilege, right? I mean, if you're working all day, you know, you can't unschool your kid. If you're a two-income family, you know, both parents work, you know, that's rough. But I mean, I, I honestly think that all education needs to come from family and neighborhood, right? And that I believe that all our resources are right here like right around us within, you know, what walking distance, right? All these people in these houses, who are they, right? <laughs> what do they know? You know, what are their capabilities, you know? And everybody in my family, what are the hidden gifts in my for them? You know, we don't even know because we're too busy working, right? And we spend our weekends recovering from our weeks of work, right? So that would be my first thing is just to deinstitutionalize the whole thing. I was actually part of this really interesting effort in the early 2000s Portland was having the Portland School District suddenly found itself in a crisis where it, there was no budget for the spring semester because there, they didn't come to an agreement with the teachers. So we were looking at like in a week students would have empty schools to show up for for their spring term, right? So uh, at the time, I was, again, in nature education and outdoor skills, and somebody, the city, I guess, organized at a, we have uh, OMSI, the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry here in Portland, had a big uh, auditorium, and they sat us all down, tables and tables and tables of people, and there were really, the facilitator at the head of the room said, okay, there's two kinds of people in this room. There's people with spaces, like community centers, studios, whatever, and there's people with programs, you know, fencing instructors, you know, math tutors, uh, me, nature education, educators, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? What we want to do is connect the two of you up. So get to know at your table, like who's got a space and who's got a program and magic started happening. I mean, it was crazy, right? Like when you put everybody together, you know, open space style, I don't know how many listeners will be familiar with open space, but these environments where um, the people themselves self-organize to create their own experience, their own conversations, right? And that's what this facilitator was helping make happen just by setting the conditions, right? And it was really magical. And I, I don't know if I've ever felt such hope and excitement for, you know, certainly this city of Portland since this experience. And 
the budget came through. <laughs> so then none of it happened. Never, you know, never talked to the, it was a, a there's a community center director that I connected up with, and we just never had any reason to follow through. There were no students. They all went to school. Everything's been back to normal. And Portland has ground through one corrupt superintendent after another over the last you know, 15 years. There's constant politics and problems and system still broken as it ever was. So like these ways of thinking of it's like, you know, you don't need experts. You just need to set the conditions where people can finally see each other face to face. And systems of privilege can be seen and resolved, right? I mean, like, it's an outrageously huge majority of homeschoolers and unschoolers, I'm sure, who are white, right? And uh, even state to state, it's either made illegal or not illegal or more difficult or less difficult to homeschool. And you can imagine if you're a black parent who wants to homeschool, you know, whether or not the truancy folks will come after you first or not out of the white parent, right? I mean, all these things play into it. So what I would do is I would unblock all these systems and connect ourselves with each other. And especially now when like, you know, friends of mine are, you know, on Twitter you know, I have a friend at Build Soil. His name's Jordan Fink, and he's just constantly like, plant chestnut trees, plant chestnut trees, right? Like, uh, I mean, if, if instead of going to school every day, there was like a million you know, school kids planting chestnut trees to mitigate climate change and also improve food security, right? But right now, we've got, a, we got all these massive resources, a massive human goodwill bottled up in these systems that don't work, right? I mean, they're being funneled into, you know, if they're successful, they're going right into college where they'll get their $100,000 of student debt and be crushed under that for however long the systems has left, you know? So, like, this is, I mean, I don't think it's, like, complicated, but I do think it's about getting out of the way, which can be hard, so getting out of the way of people with goodwill and setting conditions for people to connect. So in a sense, maybe like, you know, a giant, how would I accomplish that? A, a giant open space with a good invitation. And Portland has all these like neighborhoods has done really, Portland is a very designed city and it's really interesting. Everything that goes on here, there's like definitely like a bunch of hippies who got in in the 70s and uh, like the city government and county government and they like pull a lot of strings and so we've got like all kinds of cool programs and uh, opportunities and and one is this idea of that na- neighborhoods have their own identities like I can go walk to a bakery five minutes away and I can walk to a grocery store and walk to a coffee shop and this is like on purpose right the city is like encouraging this kind of thing. And so in that same sense, we already have neighborhoods that have these identities that, you know, you could each neighborhood could have its own open space. I mean, who knows? We've actually, I've talked about this with people. And so again, you know, it's about the freedom to unlock human goodwill. I don't know if like basic income is required to make this happen or maybe it's just a tough, like do it anyway, even though you don't feel like you have the time or, but Yeah. This all makes me so happy. (laughs) I I think one of the things that's fascinating, though, is, you know, you talked about these things that happened of these people with programs and these people with spaces and this magic happened when you connect the two and this spontaneous creativity of, hey, we can do this together. And it's so unfortunate that that 
didn't go through because it's it's yeah. like suddenly there's this opportunity to reinvent how we do all the things from the ground right. up, from the people yeah. up, right? And it's like throwing out your old software, uh, yeah, <laughs> so you can yeah. so you can build something new, taking into account everything you learned in the in the old generation. Yeah. But the thing is, that's cool anyway. Is that you got an opportunity to see that you got an opportunity to see what was possible when the system was out of the way, right? And I I think it's that opportunity to see that to know that it can happen that gives us the will to go and figure out how to actually create that right so what are what are the constraints what are the chains in the system that create this bottled up human goodwill like you said massive human goodwill is bottled up in the system that wants to come out because there's so much you know there's so much suffering and in oregon you've got this these roots in terms of hippie tree hugger love child culture, right? Yeah. yeah, That that people want to build communities and people supporting one another and people lifting one another and helping people shine and wanting to care about the environment together. And these things like as core values, Portland and Austin are pretty similar in in a lot of ways, different, but there's a lot of really strong community in Austin as well. And a lot of appreciation for the arts. You've got art in food, in music, in, you know, all of these different things, right? It's, you know, there's a culture around tacos, right? It's like, let's see what kind of cool tacos we can make. And we can all invent our cool spins on tacos. And, you know, it it turns into this fun, cool thing to go and check out all the nifty taco experiments because people do some pretty crazy fusion-y sort of stuff, but it's, it's awesome. The creativity is what's beautiful. And then when, when people are in a mode of honoring that diversity, honoring our creativity, honoring the, when I put A and B together, I get this new, cool, interesting thing. It's another kind of unbottling that is embedded in the culture. And I think too, it's another one of those things that when the systems get out of the way, and then new systems rise from the people self-organizing to solve their own problems. Yeah. You get a very different kind of emergent system, right? Right. And we're kind of in this mode where there's been a lot of non-local um, growth and in infrastructure. Yeah. So as opposed to families and neighborhoods and people looking at one another going, okay, what skills do we got? How do we put yeah, our skills yeah. together to build a thing? We've gotten in this mode of relying on the system to take care of us, right? And we give our money to the system. We give our hopes and dreams to the system. And we wait for the system to respond and feel helpless and trapped as opposed to empowered to self-organize and make our own thing. Hey, we've got a bunch of children that need an education. We've got a bunch of college students that need an education. How do we come together to figure out how to solve this problem? Well, hey, these indigenous folks have been doing this for generations, self-organizing to lift their community and pass on their knowledge to the next generation yeah. as part of just a thing you did in the culture, right? And somehow, as we like started in t- institutionalizing all of these things, that very basic wisdom and this cultural precedent of, you know, as you grow and learn things and become an elder, your focus then becomes giving back and nurturing and teaching the next generation. Yeah. 
that's a very natural thing to do. Yeah, yeah. isn't it? It's funny. Yeah, one of, one of the, I mean, I thought I made this up. It may turn out I didn't make it up. But in working with the communities, I just realized like, wow, every, you could say there are four stages of a human life, right? There's children, say there's teenagers and there's adults and there's elders, right? And so each one of these stages is like mastered. They are masters of the gifts of that place, right? So children are masters of play. There's no doubt about it. Teenagers are masters of edge and risk, right? They push the culture. They t- they jump off of rooftops. You know, the creativity is, is insane, right? And adults, when you're really adulting well, you realize that you're, you are in service, right? To, your, to the health of your own body, to, you know, your employer, to your family, right? You are like someone who is in service, right? And then you have uh, elders who are masters of story, right? They have like this huge, and it's like, what do you, you know, you run into, I mean, especially like, for better or worse, you know, like sometimes you have a parent who just won't stop telling the same story over and over and over, but that's their gift, right? And repetition, that sometimes, and I'm, you know, I bet you this has happened to almost everybody who's listening. Sometimes it's when the parent told you the story for the 10th time that they let slip a detail or whatever. And you're like, you never told me that. That changes everything, right? That is so interesting. So it's like... Uh, these, you know, these things aren't bugs, right? They're features. The teenagers, uh, like one of the, oh my God, I read this article about uh, teenagers written by a neuroscientist mom, and it was the most condescending, uh, insulting diatribe and like the lack of development, the brain development of a certain kind and teenagers. And that's why they just didn't get it and were, took stupid risks. And it was like, okay. All my experiences told me if a human being is doing something, it is the gift of millions of years of evolution. And so it it is doing something powerful and magical, right? And so teenagers don't have insufficiently developed brains. They have perfectly developed brains for what they're there to do, which is push the edge. If they had brains that had the extra infrastructure that adult brains have, it, then again, that would be the bottling up of this potential that otherwise was available, right? And so you would no longer see them jumping off roofs. I mean, the first time I saw parkour videos, right? I mean, you would we wouldn't have that experience, right? Along with the sticking bottle rockets in your pants, which is not so awesome, but it, it, it's parcel of it, right? You can't, you can't have one without the other. Pushing edge is pushing edge. And that's the magic of teenagers. And, you know, the cultural creation. I mean, everybody's always chasing what they're doing in terms of uh, social media and online art. So anyway, so I like, I've just really like deeply appreciate the full range of what it takes to be human beings. And then when you have a community, this is one of the things in institutional school uh, schooling is age segregation, right? We're going to march every a monocrop of human beings of one particular age from grade to grade to grade. When we know that big brother, big sister teaching younger brother, younger sister, like is a fantastically powerful mentoring 
method, you know? And so a school might go, oh, okay, well, one day a week in an afternoon, we'll have the sixth graders, we'll teach the fifth graders, you know, an hour of reading, whatever. It's like, okay, but we're like, what if we just let it all open, right? And the kids mixed, the teenagers mixed, the adults mixed, right? A lot of the toxic socialization of bullying. And I mean, I have to believe that like 99% of that is just being rats in a cage and bottled up, right? And not able to express yourself. It's also shocking, like teachers, uh, school teachers get worn down by these impossible expectations. And uh, although I've had one or two really good experiences stepping into a classroom uh, with friends of mine, like there's this one class, um, Theories of Knowledge, which you can imagine I was a very very excited about. And it's a part of the International Baccalaureate Program that is like some kind of AP high school program. So a friend of mine, Kent Siebold, was teaching this class. And that was like an amazing, rich conversation and amazing experience. But that was like once and or twice. And then every other time I've stepped into a classroom, I've been shocked at how the teacher speaks to the students and how the students speak to each other, the sarcasm and cynicism. And I mean, it's, it's actually like, I would not allow you to speak this way in my living room. I don't allow my kids to speak to me or each other. Like, this is shocking. It's cutting, you know, and, and it just it breaks my heart. And so, like, real socialization not a institutional socialization where we learned like courtesy and respecting, you know, that people of other ages are developing at different rates and are in a different stage of their life and what we can expect from them and what the opportunities that are there, you know? This yeah. is so amazing. I, I've got a bunch of ideas in my head now as I'm thinking about like if, if we had sort of a lifetime self-organizing sort of education infrastructure, yeah. Such that at each phase of life, you self-select for, I'm in this phase of life right now. Just, you know, let people say, mm-hmm. categorize themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And children, all programs, all collaborations, all spaces are focused on increasing skills with regards to masters of play. So a fantasy sort of dreaming and participating and collaborating in play sorts of things. And then teachers and things would be folks that have a lot of that childlike vibe energy and can help inspire the kids to really go all out with their, with their dreaming. Right. Yeah. And then teenagers, teenager phase, it's like you kind of got to go through this phase of doing lots of stupid things and surviving, right? You got to not yeah. die. <laughs> right, right, right. And right. I, mean, I certainly did my share of stupid things growing up. And I, and I scared my mom a lot. Like my mom was like terrified through my teenage years. And I feel a little bad for that, you know, looking back now. But I mean, to your point, it's like this phase that you're going through of edge and risk. And yeah. One of the things I've seen, you know, movements come out of teenager youth movements are often around this edge pushing phase, right? Because here's folks that aren't afraid to come up with new ideas and do things different and say, this is wrong. Let's try and create a new way. And we can develop those skills in ways that are less likely to 
you know, it's like you got to do stupid things to an extent, but maybe we can limit our stupid things or make them slightly more safer, right? I'm thinking about like um, like artistic edge, cultural edge. There's definitely a bunch of ways that we could potentially do storytelling around different, you know, edge progression kind of thing to give a people those ideas and adults that are in this kind of high risk taking sort of thing, but have experience with how to do these things safely, like skydiving, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, take some adults that are skilled and gifted in that master of edge and risk and have those folks be mentors in this teenager world. Yeah. And then you could do the same thing, you know, with adults. You could do the same thing with organizing elders together and working on this, you know, what are the fairy tales of our culture that we're trying to pass down in history that, you know, we've learned about what makes societies work well and thrive, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. How do we pass our wisdom down? Um, what are the biggest problems that need solving and how do we lead our world in a better direction? So one of the reasons I, I decided to change my name this year, I'm turning 40 this year and I don't have kids. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that's come up a lot in conversations is for a woman there are significant evolutionary physical changes that happen when you birth children. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have kids, I'm sort of like a grown up little kid. I've got a lot of, you know, child and teenager in me still because yeah. I don't have kids. So instead the world becomes my kids and, and I do crazy entrepreneur things and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you can see my dot love hat or my love hat on here right now too, yeah. right? Nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is what I do. I become a world warrior, right? Yeah. Trying to make the world a better place. And so as I was looking at my, my own skills, my own background, what is my own story? Start thinking about tattoo art and things like this of, of who am I that the art I started drawing gave me a picture of who I wanted to be in the world. And then defining my own name became like, defining a variable of, of something in code. Like who, who do I want to be in the world? What are the shoes that I want to try and fill? And then it becomes like a hat to wear. And I decide what I want to stand for. I decide what kind of world I want to live in. And then I try and be those things, be what I want in the world, right? Be the type of leader that we need in the world. Yeah. And so this is my elder hat, essentially. This is what I'm going to stand for. And it, and it's, And I think we're at that point where we need to go back to basic fundamental principles of our indigenous cultures that have so much wisdom that has gotten lost in the normalization of things that don't make sense. (laughs) The normalization of things that don't lead toward the thriving of humanity. If we know these things, if we see these things and we decide we're an elder yeah. and we're the elder hat, then it's really a decision to take responsibility, to look forward toward the future, to take responsibility for the communities and stuff around us and go, what are my skills? What is my star? What are my gifts? And how do I use those gifts to best contribute to the people around me, to best contribute to our future? Yeah. Um, and which is part of the reason I started gravitating toward, I want to build a new kind of school. <laughs> I want to rethink this whole school thing and see if we can do something that makes a whole lot more sense than what we're doing now. 
and there's plenty of reasons from a control standpoint to want to educate the generations in a certain sort of way that may not be in alignment with the best interests of the humans. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we have gradually increase the level of abstraction of infrastructure such that we have bigger and bigger institutions at higher and higher levels that are further and further away from families and neighbors. And we can have empathy in these localized contexts, but as soon as we give our power away to something that is so big, we just become helpless to the machine and we do things that don't make sense and we get stuck in the system. Right. And can't even see that there's a potential alternative out there. And so I feel like this next generation, there's a whole bunch of people that have really great ideas that I've seen doing really neat things. Uh, Sam Aaron, for example, is using Sonic Pi to teach little kids how to code with music. Because how fun is that to make your own musical mixes and stuff as a kid, right? And you can do that so easily. How much fun is that, right? And once you light that fire, that spark all the other things get so much easier, right? Because then you have that desire, that that researcher passion of, cool, I want to learn everything there is to know about this particular wilderness, right? It's like a wilderness of ambiguity. There's always more to learn, always more to uncover. And this creative explosion of possibilities. And really that's what education ought to be about is igniting the fire in people's souls, igniting the, the stars, right? And as elders, I think that becomes our responsibility to figure out how do we ignite the stars? Yeah. I was thinking about that too, about, I guess this idea of like, well, what, what would happen if every community used its own resources to educate children in the way it sees best fit? Is that, that, that's the general idea that we're talking about, right? Is, Is that fair? I just want to make sure before I go on. Yeah, you know, I mean, yes, like all else being equal, yes, although part of my work is like, can I provide more tools so it's not so trial and error for all those communities? But yes, and in the end, even without any facilitator training or this or that, yes, I trust all communities to figure out. Okay, so I I live in semi-rural Kentucky. Uh, If we're being honest, like I'm trying to think about like, what would my son's education look like? in a system like that. And it probably would involve local churches very heavily. And as a Jewish slash atheist family, mm-hmm. I'm worried about that. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm in a way, and I'm, I can only speak for myself. I'm kind of prefer the sort of monoculture of a public school to yeah. the alternative. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is the internet is neither good nor bad. You know, social media is neither good nor bad. It, it is a tool, and it, it's having a, a incredible influence on our lives. And so, the thing is, if you're all so say Facebook, right, is is a really negative influence on elections and communities in certain ways, but also allows us to stay connected with family members that we never would have, you know connected with and old friends, right? So you've got this force here. And what you just want to balance it out is with a local force and local connection and local resilience. Because 
So even you know setting all your education issues aside, say there was a, you know a wildfire, a drought, a flood, if you could tap into the connection you'd already built through other systems you're involved in in your own neighborhood, like what a blessing, right? Uh, if you could trust, you know, if you felt that any one particular uh, police officer that showed up at your door, if you knew you were going to know who they were and that they knew your name and knew your background, right? Like, and same with EMTs and the same with, you know, so there's this power of human connection that we tend to like, because we have all these systems that we've anonymized ourselves out of the way. And we're just like, I'm an American, I have rights. And the thing is, is, I mean, you can both complain about it all being who you know, but that is like how humans tend to operate is like based on human relationships, right? It's, do I know you? Do I trust you? So that's one thing. Like in some way, somehow resilience is important and that has to do with local connections, whether or not you agree with anybody. And, and as an aside, I found that um, I, I had some unpleasant realizations early on in my 20s that People who I agreed with, I had a really hard time making friends with. I actually couldn't stand them most of the time. So I found that my friendships emerged irrespective of, of agreement or disagreement about this idea or that idea, right? So there's like a thing there of, you know, it's not necessarily about agreeing, but that's easy to say, right? And it's certainly like issues of, of prejudice and bias and privilege are all very real, right? Uh, one one thing that I'm doing though is um, like we always have this option to generate communities of practice wherever we are. So I'm in the third year of a symposium called the Thermodynamics of Emotion Symposium, whose goal is to share models and actually a few specific models that have come out of complexity thinking. One is called immediate moment theory. One is called uh, human systems dynamics. It's um, a Glenda Oyang. Immediate moment theory actually comes from um, this uh, expert canine rehabilitator uh, named Kevin Bean, and it's a model of behavior, uh, human behavior, animal behavior, right? Because it's dogs and canines are what's going on in that relationship and rehabilitation. I mean, uh, humans and canines, right? And then there's uh, the from the tracker world. This uh, there's this idea of concentric ring theory. You know that every environment we're in is a tissue that, when an event happens, it propagates through the system in a spherical manner, right? If I go into the forest and I am walking too fast, this same pattern will happen every time. There will be what is called a bird plow, right? A bird is scared up from my feet, flies up into the branches, right? That will alert other birds feeding nearby, which will either crouch in bushes or also fly up and do sentinel. That will alert deer nearby who will cock their ears or hunker down, right? And it'll just go and go and go until it finally dies out, right? And uh, so, like, there's this idea that whatever, like setting aside attention, setting aside thinking, that what we are is we are all part of this deformable medium. Every speck, uh, everything we hold in our hands, every puff of air, every human being, we're all participating in this, this substrate that transmits forces, right? And what we want is we're looking for coherence. We're looking for building systems that cohere and support their self-organization. And that's 
why there's even humans here, right? Because that happened for millions of years of evolution of life. So, like, so the thermodynamics of emotion symposium is embodies that. So the first year, we had keynotes and workshops, three days of that, and I'm I was itching to move us to the next place where we had two days of keynotes the next year and one day of open space, right? And of course, again, an open space is where the participants themselves create an agenda for the day based on what they're interested in, their questions, right? And you put it up on a wall and then you have sessions where you meet and talk about these things. Because I can't know what people need and I can't know what they already know. Sometimes you're giving a talk to somebody and they already know it, right? The next thing, which I would love to do and go like, I, you know, thinking about thinking, I'd love to float up to the next level. So then this third year, we finally got to where we could have two days of open space and the first day being keynotes. And the fourth year, I'm going to push for three days of open space, right? As we are going along, what I'm midwifing this cultural this community of practice, which is like, listen, you know what complex systems are. If you're here, you know, if you somehow found yourself in this space, you belong here. And you know that in living systems, systems with many dimensions, more than we can keep track of, many parts, more than we could ever count, right? And that where a single cause has many unforeseen effects, right? There's not a single cause and effect like a, a pool table, right? It's so that complex systems have, as agents interact, it gives rise to patterns over time. And it's the patterns that we want to focus on, right? And then traditional communities, they're always looking at patterns, right? And they are storehouses of patterns. Um, I'll never forget this one story in Indonesia. There was a tsunami several years back. And it just blasted most of the developing areas, wiped out whole towns, cities. But there in Thailand on the coast was a story of this village of Moken. They called them sea gypsies, but they're sort of nomadic fishers. And, and there was a village where, where they saw the water recede way out and like the seafloor being exposed for like a half mile out, you know, into the ocean. And there was an elder who was like, this is the story we tell. When the sea gets angry, she exposes her the seafloor, and that's when you have to run for high ground, right? So there here was a culture who'd been telling a story, generate who knows when the last time this happened, hundreds of years ago, who knows? But they encapsulate it, they put it into a story which made it easily transmissible so people enjoyed telling it. Nobody had to wag a finger at them, like it's best practices, right? No, it was a fun story to tell. Elders told it to children, children became elders, told it to their children, and then here it was ready. Right. And only I think one person in their village died and it was somebody who was disabled and and it just in the chaos, they couldn't make it. Right. And hundreds and hundreds, I think maybe thousands of people died in that tsunami all over the region. And this one village was stood out as as having escaped most of the damaging effects. So so it's like these complex systems. We look at patterns. Right. And this whole pattern of like a midwifing is a pattern like even that stance um you hear technical coaches say over and over agile coaches like i'm here to make myself obsolete so i'm at the thermodynamics of emotion symposium i'm there to make myself obsolete i want to grow this community so that people are speaking with authority about some really weird stuff that i introduced in year one from other experts right it's like i want us you know you're all here 
maybe you're not quite sure why you came, but you you paid your money and here we are and let's own this material. Let's own this navigating these complex systems, right? So that's how I see it. It's like, no, like we tend to go, oh, you have a recipe? Okay, well then I just have to be local and I have to give up my own values or theism and my cultural Jewishness. And that is like, you know, like we tend to think in those terms of like silver bullet practices, but it's like, well, okay, uh, how do we explore this so we get all our needs met so that you have local resilience, that you receive the gifts of local education in the area? I mean, all the genius that's around there. But it's also mediated by the fact that you, as a family, do have your own values and have your own past and, you know, connecting with other resources that have that. Again, it's a mid, it's a gardening, you know, gardening you know, or is the best metaphor or like in traditional cultures, land tending, where it's like you look around at the valley and you're like, see all these forests, see all these grasslands, human hands have touched all of this, right? This is all, you know, it's abundant with food and wildlife because we burn it every year in the cool, damp season, because we replant, because we dig in the right places, because we, you know, poop or pee in the right places for fertilizer, right? It's like uh, all the systems where, I mean, that's another whole idea is that where, you know, modern humans are constantly trying to reduce our impact. We got to be eco-friendly and reduce our impact. Whereas traditional cultures is like, how can we have the biggest impact possible? (laughs) Right? Because human beings by their nature are a blessing on the earth, not a curse. Right? Whereas in our culture, we're like, well, humans are clearly a curse. So let's just be the least bad, you know, don't be evil. Right? And it's like, we can do so much more than just not be evil. We can be part of these projects of of building Amazons, right? Right here. So, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's sort of my image of it is like why I kind of balk when you, you know, we're saying like, uh, do we just let everybody willy nilly do their thing? And it's like, on the one hand, yes, I've, everyone deserves that respect. I'm not the boss of anyone. Mm. And there are, there are more tools. Like we still tend to see conflicts on a team as like, oh, that's a personality conflict. It's your fault and your fault and your fault. And whereas in like a complex systems point of view, I'm like, what information are they not getting? What resources do we not have? What pressures are pushing unneeded energy into the system that's making us less resilient and less able to deal with little frustrations, right, between our team members? Like, like you start thinking in complex systems and it drains a lot of the, the small town garbage. I mean, there's nothing perfect about small town American life, you know? But uh, so it's like, Yes, I want our culture itself to improve. We don't necessarily have the tools quite yet. So what I'm hearing here is, so Jacob mentioned the rural Kentucky. Yeah. Of, you know, maybe the, in a particular area, like rural areas, there's not going to be as much local genius, say, mm-hmm. such as comparatively to living in Portland. Well, you're going to have a lot more local genius around than in the middle of Kentucky. I think there, I actually would dispute that. I think there is plenty of local genius. I think it's a matter of cultural diversity that is sometimes neglected by those in power. I think that's what I would put it. I should say though, that even if that's not your specific circumstance, say, because I, I mean, I know nothing about the area where you live other than just what you rattled off. There's also areas where an entire community can be starved of education. Mm-hmm. Africa is a good example of systemic dysfunction where 
everyone ends up in survival mode, essentially. And then as opposed to gatekeepers on information stuff, you've got gatekeepers around food, right? You know, everybody's starving. It becomes a whole different set of dysfunction. And when you're trying to survive and, you know, you're on the edge of starvation, you can't really do anything other than focus on getting a little more lifeline. And economically speaking, so the friend that in uh, the Gambia in West Africa, and I found out for $15, the cost of like three Starbucks lattes, you can give a family three months of lifeline. Mm -hmm. And once you've got lifeline to survive, then, hey, now we don't have to focus on our immediately sur immediate survival. We can focus on getting skills, figuring out how we're going to make money and do something that is a little bit more high leverage than just get through the day and try to live, right? And when I start thinking about entire communities that are falling off the edge, the only way these people get away from the edge is with people that are in enough position of privilege that they can go, hey, you know what? I can buy you three cups of coffee, <laughs> right? And we're in this in this place of how far do these people have to fall off the cliff before it's worth three cups of coffee? I mean, really, it's like it's like so little money of phasing people. But then what happens, we end up learning these normalized behaviors of, well, these poor people are generally trying to steal and they're generally thieves. And so if someone asks you for help. The thing that you should do is turn a blind eye to those people that want your help, right? And it's not that there aren't people that are thieves and there aren't people that are, you know, trying to figure out ways to get money because, you know, they're on the edge of struggling and that becomes a way of life. It's figuring out how to, how to get money out of people, right? But the people that do that, then there's, there's also just genuine kind people that are just, you know, on the edge. And then as soon as we normalize this behavior of turn a blind eye to the suffering, right? We hold these entire communities, entire continents in this downward spiral. And then these people that are in survival mode on the edge, you know, you think about your family being on the edge, how desperate you get. And then somebody comes up and says, I'll give you food and feed your family if you'll take up arms for our cause or whatever, right? If you were in that situation of being on the edge of death, what would you do? It's your family, right? And so it's like we push people down to this level of desperation, and then we get systemic kind of wickedness and control dynamics and cold heartedness and stuff that comes with, you know, you're supposed to be cold to these humans. And then we get these buildup of problems with wars and, you know, all of these other dynamics. And then we end up spending all of, you know, huge budget on war as opposed to spending on education, as opposed to spending on lifting people, as opposed to investing in our communities and our people. And, you know, you can have geniuses that are born anywhere, right? Right. You can have people with incredible talent that are born any place in the world. And, you know, we're all human beings. We all deserve an opportunity to shine our light. And so I feel like there's some things that we need that localized resilience. But when we're in a community that needs help with that, 
we also need ways to have like non-local sharing contribution at a community level. Like how do we build a school in a new village and then help the people to self-organize, teach them the, the skills to be teachers and to get the skills they need to be great entrepreneurs, right? I think the answer isn't one or the other. It's both. Yeah. I, I mean, Africa is really interesting because there's billions and billions of dollars, gold and diamonds and resources that come go out of Africa and into the coffers in Europe, right? That's uh, totally skewed. And then we send aid to Africa. So, I mean, basically, like, I mean, the situation I see in communities like Africa, big place, but, uh, you know, all all the different countries in Africa are like, I mean, there's loads of colonies of European countries and it was their purposes to extract wealth and extract um, value out of these places. And so, I mean, although absolutely, you know, contribute out of our privilege and send them money, but like also like listen to what they need and listen to what their problems are. I mean, I think this comes up with what Jacob was saying, like, are you telling me that I, you know, if I did that and it's like, you know your own local issues the best, you know. And if like if there was a community in Gambia, I mean, I've heard that I've heard the jokes about, oh, here come the white people building the third school in our village. Thank you, you know. Uh, so white charity work and you know first world charity work is always a, a bit sinister because that's the right hand, and then the left hand is arms flowing into the country and resources, gold, and, you know, Shell Oil has a plant and it's pumping a sludge into the, the swamp, and now you can't dig any edible roots out of the swamp, and the animals are dying, and, you know, it's, it's incredibly complicated situations, and there's no easy way out, and I think always listening to the people who you want to help and them telling you what they need and then in that same sense, you know, like um, you were saying, Artie, where, where it's like, you know, not turning away because you're worried about what they know and how they know or what kind of person they are, but just listening. And if they tell you they need something that you think, well, that's not what you need, but you give it anyway to them because then they discover, oh, yeah, I needed this other thing, right? I mean, you, they start self-organizing and having their own experience, and we just trust them to do that. And also, yeah, geniuses are everywhere. They're they're absolutely everywhere. And and part of actually my one of my questions, which you know, I think like in traditional cultures, you know, I get the sense that um, you're not judged by your answers; you're judged by the quality of your questions, right? <laughs> and so, uh, one of my questions is, what were rocket scientists doing fifteen thousand years ago? What problems were they solving with those minds that are just insatiable? And, you know, there's there's all kinds of human beings. You know, there's makers and and there's mentors and this and that. And there, But there are like, you know, there's some minds that are just insatiable in this sense. And what were they doing? And it's like as I've gone on deeper into skills of tracking and outdoor skills, I mean, I've begun to discover like, whoa, this is really intense. And even if you just think of like building the Amazon as the project of a rocket scientist, right? And how, you know, biochar, this material you can make that's kind of charcoal that you pack into mounds that will absorb water and hold nutrients. And then you plant trees in those mounds and you just slowly build out this grid of trees and that are like edible nuts and this and that. And, and you then one day you've got this entire self-maintaining forest 
that has even like overgrown the the civilizations that built it you know like they're buried now under the abundance that they created so we don't need the the cities anymore right yeah so i just think like this listening as people who want to intervene in complex systems listening to what the need is contributing what the need is and just being available and not trying to have answers having lots of questions and uh leading with with that insofar as you know anybody's asking me to lead at all you know i just discover these communities over and over again what they do is they'll have the same request and people will ask them what do you need and they'll say what they need and then they'll be given something else that is in line with the grant proposal that the person got or in line with some other priority or excess resource that they want to dump somewhere and it's not actually what the community needs you know yeah lots of complexity for sure no easy answers, but one thing that we can start doing is contributing good questions. I, I love that. Not judged by the answers, judged by the quality of the questions we ask. And how can we pass our questions on to the future through our stories and get people thinking about the right questions? There's a lot of really good stuff there. So we're getting near the end of the show where we do reflections and, and share any final thoughts, takeaways, threads we saw through this that were interesting and insightful. And Willem, you get to go last. So Jacob, you want to start? Yeah, I was um, I was thinking about a, a podcast that I heard recently, and it's called uh, It Could Happen Here. And it's an interesting series that sort of asks the question like, well, what would happen if there was a second American Civil War? And it's not quite journalism. It's using journalistic principles to sort of speculate however you know wildly what a second american civil war might look like what's something interesting that they really delve into a lot is like what happens when far distant federal and state governments collapse and are not present and they listed several examples and i think one of them is is in syria which is now they're in the civil war now where um cities uh, that may be ethnically diverse and may maybe traditionally they don't agree on everything have sort of found ways to sort of connect around basic human, you know, community services, you know, in the way of like finding water and electricity, uh, food, and, you know, presumably that can be extended to education as well. And the, the basic idea is like, we're going to at least agree that it's on all of us to work together to like sort of provide the bare minimum. And we're going to leave each other alone when it comes to, like, cultural differences. So I just felt like in this discussion we were having, it seems to me that, like, that might be, like, the sweet spot, right? It's like local communities can surely agree on and find, like, really innovative ways that they can provide for each other. And I I feel like the sweet spot would be, like, what are the things that we're going to say are we're even going to see to the family level, right? Like families are going to get to decide for themselves X, Y, and Z, but like as a community, we're going to come together and put our collective resources behind A, B, and C. So yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, One of the key things I remember you saying, Willem, was the story of how folks in Portland self-organized to come up with a ad hoc education program. But this magic only happened with the people, with the programs, and the people, with the spaces, when there were two key ingredients. One, the existing system had to be out of the way. And then two, 
space had to be created with the people with the spaces and the people with the programs to come together and self-organize and say, hey, here's this problem that needs solving. Let's work together around this shared thing that, you know, needs doing that we all care about, the shared, the shared interest. And when all of those ingredients happened, there's magic. And I think one of the big challenges we have right now is the existing system is in the way in a whole lot of ways. And there's various complex system dynamics with all of these things. But to have like a common, to get folks to come together, to self-organize, to set things in a new direction, we've got to have that shared ideal to build around. And I think going back to very simple first principles of like kindness, it's a pretty good one, right? You know, there's, there's things that we can agree on, on, well, what does it mean to be a kind human? Let's start with that question and have a discussion about it, right? Start seeing all the different people's ideas about it, what, it, what it means to be a kind person. And some of these values, maybe we can phrase in terms of the questions to get people to come together around, well, what matters to us as human beings? What do we care about? I want to be able to chase and build my dreams. I want to be able to be the greatest version of myself that I can be. I want to be able to contribute my skills to others that that need them, contribute my gifts. You know, it seems like there's some basic things that we can agree upon for what it means for community to thrive. And we're in this era where existing system infrastructure is collapsing, is not sustainable for a number of reasons. And there's also a lot of cynicism and hopelessness and people coping by throwing all the things, all the people under the bus. You know, there's there's a lot of that energy right now, right? And I think a lot of it is grounded in cynicism as a coping mechanism, in essentially an undercurrent of, of hopelessness. And to give people hope, we need a strategy. We need a plan. We need a vision. And that vision isn't something that's going to come from one person. It's weaving all of our ideas together, our dreams together, our capabilities together, it's figuring out how we build local resilience and and then share that knowledge uh, across communities as well. So having kind of non-local sharing at the same time as we have local resilience and local self-organizing structures. And I feel like if we had a space created for the people with the programs and the people with the spaces to come together around what does plan B look like? Like, let's let's just throw spaghetti at the wall <laughs> and see where we go with, like, vision of all these things. I love this discussion because it's like once we have all this experience with seeing how all these different communities come together and organize, like these indigenous people, it gives us so much insight into what other possibilities are out there. And since we all have different eyes and come from different places, all of that is knowledge that could be applied collectively to figuring out how do we solve this problem? How do we come up with a way to do science to tell if we're doing better? What does it mean to thrive? How do we know if we're doing good or not? Like, can we define some basic ideas of what is better to do science around, to do community around? And 
you know, I, I think we need to start making a deliberate effort to optimize systems for joy and thriving as a first order thing that we do. How do we scale joy and thriving? And in order to even have those discussions, we got to have the willingness to take risks and drive new edges. And so I'm feeling like based on this conversation, the era of folks are that are in their sort of teenager sort of phases that are master of edges coming together with people with wisdom about the education system is the right sort of combination of skills that have the capability combined to actually reinvent all the things. This has been such a fascinating discussion. I'm the thing I'm wondering is with the existing system in the way how do we create opportunities to start moving in this direction? How do we create the space for step one? Yeah, that's that, that actually segues really well into what I was going to reflect on, which is this idea that um, that experience was so frustrating with the, the public schools and the programs and, and spaces, and, and then they took it away, right? Somebody else with more power took it away that uh, I had to change how I thought about things. And even in our, you know, our, our conversation this morning, I'm just realizing, you know, I do think our culture has all these impediments to navigating complex systems in wise way wise ways like everything we're told you know time is money and you know all our homilies are all against are blocking us from truly navigating these systems well right and having the kind of lives that that are worth having right and so i think like um you know even like on a on a software team you know like what we want is we want you know the management to get out of our way so we can really thrive and 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 there's our instructions for ourselves ourselves i believe like no nobody with any more power we don't have control over them so what we can do i feel is get out of the way of people who we do have more power than get out of their way you know and listen to them listen to the system and provide resources to the system you know servant leadership to our own tiny patch and i think it does influence it does influence everyone around us and you know there's one of the principles of the navigating these systems and the the thermodynamics of emotion framework is this idea that um you know you see a little bird on the ground feeding and you're in a hurry or you're in your thoughts so you just keep walking forward and your bubble of disturbance pushes and knocks them up in a way because who are they right They're, they're just prey you know and i'm the predator right and so I have more power. But if that was, a, say, a mountain lion, you know, would I just keep walking forward and, you know, no. And so there's this idea of seeing, see the predator and the prey. And for whatever reason, like, in some sort of fundamental human way, like, if I can see, you know, in a child or in somebody who works for me or has less power than me, if I see that in them, like, the capacity for them, for the me to have to submit to them and what they choose, you know, and to be controlled by them, if I could see myself in that frame, their own ability to be an agent, you know, and have agency and see the predator in the prey, right? It changes me and it makes me more respectful, more courteous, and I do more listening. And, I, you know, and it's like, I, I think, you know, just one or two small tools like that 
I feel like could shift things so much, you know, if we just share, you know, what works in these complex systems. But even setting that aside, I think no matter what, you know, getting out of anybody's way, whether or not they choose to pass on the favor in their corner of the system is going to create more life and and more possibility. And it's so interesting that we're we're having this conversation and everything both of you are saying, because I also have a podcast I've been listening to called The Fall of Civilizations Podcast. And uh, I'm going to spoil episode three because it's relevant. It's a super good podcast. And it's just like telling story after story of empires that have collapsed. And um, all through the Near East, there's a layer of charcoal and arrowheads and uh, bones with uh, fractures and scarring from weapons, right? All at the same archaeological strata in time, right? And the question is, what happened? It's in these great city-states and great empires that just disappeared. And the same at the same level of char, they were disappeared and abandoned. Some forever, some re-inhabited years later. Right? It's like who did it? Well, there's stories of these sea people, right? Sea people that showed up, tens of thousands of them, right on shore without warning, and bam, overwhelmed the city, and everybody's everything's burnt, sacked, looted, and the city's dead. Right? It's like who are the sea people? And this is like city after city throughout this whole region in the Near East, Hittite cities and Egyptian cities and. It's like, what happened? What happened, right? And as the, the podcast goes on, the the host gives his theory, which I'm an extremely big fan of, that part of the, the thing of this uh, sea people is that they didn't seem to have any kind of leadership. They were just a horde that showed up. A horde, a leaderless horde. No, no, no diplom- diplomats, nothing to argue with, just a horde. And the tiny ships, big ships, they would just appear, right? Well, what happened? Well, there is at the same time, there was 10 to 20 years of a kind of drought. Like there was a really terrible weather, and all through the region, all the plants and crops were suffering. There wasn't as much food coming out of the ground. And this was happening all through Europe, too. It's probably, you know, much worse farther north, right? And uh, Iceland had a volcano that blew and changed the climate for the entire region. And so what you had was a pebble that started a landslide of independent village peoples going, we just can't, or my family's going to starve. We've got to go get food from somewhere else and I'll bring it back until you had hundreds of thousands of climate refugees showing up at your doorstep, right? And and right now, I think we tend to think, oh, we're the first world. We're going to do everybody else a favor. You know, We're going to decide who gets in and who doesn't. We're going to have walls. And it's like, you know, see the predator and the prey. <laughs> At some point, we may not have a choice, like who shows up and the decisions they make, you know, if we have walls in their way are going to impact our own families. Like we're being on top, you know, even in terms of like English being the world language of business. Well, before that, it was French and before that it was Arabic, right? It's like it just keeps changing. Next, maybe it'll be Mandarin. Who knows, you know, but uh you know, there's a wheel of fortune here and we can get off of it and root ourselves in our places and uh, have a better future. And it's conversations like this that I think make that possible. So, yeah, thank you. All right. So that is a wrap. Thank you so much, Willem, for joining us. This was really, really great. I wanted to ask you one more last question to to wrap up this 
uh, conference you mentioned, the Thermodynamics of Emotion Symposium. What is mm-hmm. the date of this conference and how would people find out more about it? Well, it is the first weekend uh, of October every year. It's in Portland, Oregon, and there's a, a website, thermodynamicsofemotion.com, that has like images and pictures from last year and links to all our keynotes that are up on YouTube. There's lots of great resources. Honestly, I'm, I think I might do a Kickstarter for next year, so there will be a big uh, media push, social media push for that. All right. Well, let us know about that when the time comes. And um, I mean, I think it's a really cool thing. It's something that we talk about a lot on the show. So a lot of our listeners are probably very interested in that. So keep us posted. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. 